Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And Mark, by the way, we had like, like a 20-minute discussion about the inflection on, uh, is it serious? <laughs> Got it. I think you can get theatrical with it. Is it serious? <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor speak. I'm Jean-Luc Neptune, MD. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. I'm also a health technology and startup investing expert, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. And I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. So we're so excited to be part of the Offscript network because there are so many great shows coming out of Offscript. That's right. Like F-U-M-S. Yeah, you heard that right. F-U-M-S. Giving multiple sclerosis the middle finger with host Kathy Reagan-Young. Kathy has a great episode called funny shit about MS with comedian Sherry Short, because sometimes you just have to laugh. Yeah, and you have to love that she also interviews the Squatty Potty founders on another episode, a perfect pairing for our future colonoscopy episode. <laughs> so check out FUMS on the Offscript Health Network. We'll make sure we put the link in our show notes. So this is our uh, kickoff episode. We're going to have a question every time. And today it is, who are you anyway? We thought it'd be fun to do a little intake, so to speak, and tell us a little bit about ourselves, what makes us tick, what makes us hopefully <laughs> qualified to record a podcast. So instead of the usual sort of getting to know you questions, like where are you from or what's your sign, which is a tad bit cheesy, uh, we thought we'd go a little <laughs> bit out of the box and hopefully do some creative and kind of cut to the chase questions. So who are you anyway? And JL, I'll start by asking you, what is a random fun fact that maybe a lot of people don't know about you? Ooh, that's a good one. Good way to get started. So uh, I will say that probably one of the more interesting things is that Jean-Luc is actually not my real first name. Uh, my real first name is actually Sebastian. Uh, but because of some complicated birth certificate stuff, I've always been Jean-Luc. And uh, if I had grown up in a French-speaking country, that wouldn't have been a problem. But in the United States, people butcher my name every day. Some people think it's cool, especially people like who watch Star Trek. I think uh, Patrick's so it really helped a lot to boost up pronunciation of uh, Jean-Luc as, as an English name or as a, a name that could be pronounced by uh, people who speak English. But uh, more often than not, it's sort of a mess. So I tend to go with the JL branding, which is pretty simple because everybody can say JL. Make it so. But I love the name Sebastian so much that I gave it to my son, my firstborn son, as a gift. And he goes by Sebastian Neptune. Oh, I love that. And I actually think it sounds incredibly sophisticated. Uh, Mark Lewis, <laughs> even at my own institution, there are multiple Mark Lewises. We are a dime a dozen, but your name just has <laughs> such distinction and, uh, and elegance. 
Do you go by a middle initial any ever? So I, I sometimes go by Mark A, but I need to work on my search engine optimization. I like that idea of using a middle initial. All right. So my fun fact, JL, is I was I was not born in in Texas, but mm. I am an honorary Texan. The story here is my wife is a, a native Texan, and when we were getting married, her father was working with the governor. And the governor, I believe, expressed extreme disappointment that uh, my uh, father-in-law, his only daughter, would marry a non-Texan. So to sort of fix the problem, as it were, he uh, conferred honorary Texan status upon me uh, right before our wedding, I think to kind of legitimize the union. Uh, So I have this massive certificate behind me. It's actually much larger than my medical school diploma. It's appropriately massive because I love Texas. I lived there for many years, but it it does feel to me like a sovereign nation within the U.S. So I sort of feel like I have my, my, my state citizenship of Texas. Yes. And, and I'll tell you, for people who are not from the United States, I, th- I think it can be difficult for them to understand how serious Texans are about their Texanicity or whatever you might call it. Uh, one of my teammates from college was from Texas. And, you know, he told me that people take you have to take a whole history of Texas course, like when you're in high school. It's a big deal. But growing up in the 1980s, my parents had watched Dallas. So mm. they thought when we moved to uh, to Texas that, you know, everyone's going to own a, a massive ranch <laughs> and have oil wells and, and such. So that, that was slightly uh, misleading. Uh, but you're right. It's one of those states that just has its own distinct reputation. That's funny. That's funny. Cool. Um, and maybe as the next question, you know, we're, we're both doctors here. We're both parts of the brotherhood. Um, you know, we've had many formative moments in our life. Maybe why don't you uh, lead with a formative moment from your life? So it's, it's actually related to what I was just saying. So I was actually born in the UK. If you move to the United States at all, I think this is still true. Um, the United States government requires you to get a chest x-ray. What they were trying to do, and I think are still trying to do, is look for uh, tuberculosis. So, TB, so right? chest x yeah. So chest X-ray is a relatively easy screen for TB. Anyway, long story short is that my father had been otherwise healthy. He was forty-two at the time, and his his uh, X-ray uh, was almost completely full on on the right side. And and again, X-rays are supposed to penetrate the body, especially the lungs. You expect to see a lot of air. You're not expecting to see a mass. And so that was actually how we discovered uh, that there was something wrong with him. Was this? It wow. was supposed to be a routine governmental procedure, right? So I have to tell you, the the embassy could not have broken bad news to us in a colder fashion. It was literally a phone call oh. that said, you don't have TB, but, <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, uh, and then we were left, frankly, to our own devices. So we got to America and had to engage with this really complicated and frankly, costly healthcare system. In fact, one of the main reasons I'm excited to do this podcast with you is to try to explain a very complicated and and sometimes bewildering system to people who, unlike us, don't have the privilege of working inside of it. Because, you know, basically we hit the ground here and that was how we um, needed to learn by necessity how American medicine works. Wow, that's a, a tough introduction to the American healthcare system. I'm sorry to hear about that experience. Uh, it's uh, again, it's a, it's a crazy system, and, and maybe uh, a good way for me to segue into a formative experience for my life. I mean, I'm sure this was the case for you too, but I think I always see internship as the year that really changed my life in so many ways, right? And again, I think you know many people don't realize that transition that you make from being a medical student, where you're really not responsible for anything, to now being on the floor 
floor and you are the doctor and you may have been a doctor for seven days and everybody expects you to know exactly what to do. Uh, and it really is a very, you know, sink or swim kind of environment. I think it's a little different now. I think it's a little less harsh, but uh, it's still very much one of those environments where you got to jump in. And I always uh, jump in and learn. And what I always tell people is I started my internship off before the state instituted limits on the number of hours that you could work. So I worked 40 days straight in the cardiac ICU with no days off on call every third night. And I'll tell you, man, that really toughens you, really makes you stronger mentally. But whew. At the end of that 40 days, boy, that was uh, that was very challenging. But I feel like I learned a lot during internship. And, you know, I feel like there's a before jail, before training to be a doctor and a jail after training to be a doctor. How about you? What was your internship like? I was going to say, that sounds like medical internship Lent, 40 days. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, goodness gracious, I'm sure you did have to actually give something up, which was your free time and, and possibly even your sanity. I, I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I, I think people know the word residency. In fact, just the other night, my 10-year-old son uh, was asking my wife and I, we're both doctors, um, what does residency mean? And we told them, you know, not too long ago, you lived in the hospital, like you physically lived in the hospital. It sounds like you figuratively lived in the hospital, but it goes back to, to me, to Malcolm Gladwell's you know, 10,000 hours theory that the only way to truly master something is to completely immerse yourself in it and just do it over and over and over again. And I think that that experience really does shape us as people. I love your demarcation of before and after. Uh, my wife and I feel similarly. I, you know, Med school is a wonderful educational experience. But as with anything else, until you actually hold the responsibility yourself, uh, I'm not entirely sure that you really understand the weight that comes with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about medicine is I love the history of medicine. And one of the things that I loved most was medical terminology. So one of the things you talked about was residency, when you actually were a resident in the hospital. Another term that we use is a house officer, right? And remember, that yes, was because yeah. you were in, yeah. in the house, right? That's a really old one. Um, my dad uh, was a pathologist. He trained, he did his internship at Mercy Hospital in Philadelphia, like way back in the Stone Ages. And they would do 48 hour straight shifts where they had to be awake for 48 hours. And then I think they got a 12 hour break or something like that. But I mean, it was, it was crazy back in the old days. You know, that, that first night I mentioned for me, that was a 37 hour shift. And I, I remember just being so tired. I actually never experienced uh, becoming delirious because you hadn't slept. And honestly, the very end, that's, that's how I felt. And I'm not, I'm not proud of this at all, but I vividly remember I actually fell asleep at a stoplight on the way home. And I only woke up <laughs> because the cars behind me were honking. Uh, and after that, I realized this is not a, a safe thing to be doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. And, and you talk about medical history and this is true. You know, one of the great sort of early 20th century surgeons and proponents of surgical residency was addicted to cocaine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've sometimes wondered how much did that end up to you know, sort of influence the expectations of our, both our work hours and our ability to, uh, you know, stay awake during those long grueling shifts. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, other than wakefulness, uh, infinite wakefulness, if you could choose a superpower, Jay, I'll go a little bit lighter here. What would you choose? 
Good one. You know, I, I was given this some thought and uh, it ties into actually one of my favorite comic books growing up. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember buying comic books in the at the newsstand. You know, they used to come out. X-Men used to come out once a week and that was my favorite comic. And of the X-Men characters, my favorite was Wolverine. And the Wolverine character I always loved because it was sort of a dark and brooding and very complicated, complex character in what was otherwise a very well-written comic. But I really loved the Wolverine character in particular. And I think Hugh Jackman did an amazing job bringing the Wolverine to life in the movie uh, screen. But what I loved about the Wolverine was that ability to regenerate, to suffer any kind of physical harm. Uh, and I think that there's a, like a, there's a metaphor there, you know, not only the physical yes. harm, but being able to regenerate and recover from any kind of trauma that you might face. So, uh, you know, I'm an old man now. I, I like to run in Central Park. And after a three-mile run, every part of my body is hurting. So I'd love to have that uh, infinite uh, or rapid regeneration so I could recover more quickly from my workouts. Well, I think you're being very self-effacing, of course, but also, I mean, in, in truth, I think there is something profound there. I mean, in what you do, especially in what you do, you help people heal. Yes. I love the notion of regeneration as a superpower. So again, I'll, I'll kind of stay deep for a second. I, I love the X-Men. I'll tell you why. It's a slightly different reason than yours. So as I mentioned at the top, I have a hereditary uh, cancer syndrome. And I've also passed that on. My mutation has been passed on to my 10-year-old son. Hmm. When I was trying to explain to him that we're different, but that it's okay to be different and you can find your own sort of strength in that, I, I absolutely use the X-Men. And I, I sort of feel like they've made mutants cool. And I know it doesn't take away all the, you know, uh, health concerns, but it was actually a really neat sort of instrument um, to, uh, you know, teach a very young boy uh, about, you know, why we're different. But, you know, that's that's okay. And, and in some ways that is also our strength. Yeah. And and I think a lot of people who may not know about the X-Men, you know, it, the X-Men comic starts, if I remember correctly, in like the late 60s, or early 70s. It's really an allegory for the civil rights movement, an yeah. alg allegory for, you know, how, how should we think about people being different? And if you think about all the different kinds of movements that were happening at that time, a women's rights movement, an LGBTQ movement, uh, a, a, a civil rights movement, um, the comic, if you read the comic in that context, it's it's so much more than a comic. Yeah, that's, oh, that's so well put. I love it. Cool. Uh, now, we've been talking a lot about being doctors. We've made a lot of allusions to being doctors here. But uh, good question. Like, what brought you into being uh, a physician? What brought you into the field? Yeah, so it was really my father's diagnosis, honestly. So I was eight when we arrived here. And I mean, again, we barely had time to absorb being in a new country. So, you know, I've heard that there's like certain stressors in life. So, you know, moving, getting a new job, a serious medical illness. And my poor dad sort of had to absorb all three at once. Wow. So he, he basically sort of landed here and we had to find very quickly a, a cardiothoracic surgeon, a doctor that was going to cut open his chest. And so he actually had his entire right lung removed. Wow. And even that didn't entirely remove the cancer. So the cancer remains stuck, if you will, to um, the area behind his, his breastbone, his sternum. Mm -hmm. So they radiated that. And one of the many things we'll talk about in this podcast, uh, you know, from my practice is just how much uh, cancer treatment has improved. And to be honest with you, every time I treat someone now, I have this tiny wistful part of me that wishes I could go back and apply these modern lessons and advancements to my father. Because literally, J.L., I'd would see him, you know, when he'd come home from radiation, he would take his shirt off and he just had a big red X drawn on his chest in mm -hmm. Sharpie. It was that crude. And then finally, he got chemo. And all the things, all the stereotypes of chemo happened to him. He 
uh, lost his hair. His immune system was uh, horrendous. Uh, he got really, really sick and, and nauseous. Uh, my father lived seven years through all that treatment. Wow. And I know that's not, you know, we would all like to have more time with our parents. I'm actually incredibly grateful. And, and the weird sort of providential spin on all this is that, you know, if he hadn't had the immigration x-ray, I actually think it would have been found at a much, much later stage. And I think we'd have actually mm. had much less time. So even as crude as I'm making it sound, I think those treatments at least prolonged his life. And then the final part of the story, to answer your question, is I got to watch his oncologist really connect to my dad. My, my dad's oncologist came to his funeral, which always made a huge impression on me. And then the, the, the final part, the personal part for me was uh, his oncologist realized I was interested then. I was a freshman in high school when my dad died. I was very interested in biology. And he said, hey, listen, you seem pretty science oriented. I think that was his kind way of saying I, I was a nerd. And he was absolutely right. Uh, <laughs> he, he could spot him. And he said, listen, would you like to come work in my clinic? And so every summer that I could, uh, high school and college, I worked in this oncology practice. And you know, I started out doing very, very rudimentary tasks. In fact, at the beginning, all I really did was walk around and shadow him. And he was so gracious to let me do that. And I realized, you know, cancer has a horrendous reputation. It still kills far too many people. However, Outpatient oncology, meaning cancer care that's done in a clinic, is actually a lot more hopeful than uh, when you see someone in the hospital. And also the relationship the relationship he had with my father and with other patients, I was like, I, this is what I want to do. This combines all the things I love. There's definitely science, so I get to use my head, but you also get to really connect to people. And so you get to you know feel. Um, and to me, that's been the perfect marriage and it's sustained me ever since. I'm not saying it's not still, you know, horribly sad when I lose someone, a patient in my practice. On the other hand, I've also gotten to witness over the course of these decades just how much better it's gotten. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great story and uh, sort of an interesting tie into my story. So, you know, my father was a uh, physician. Uh, he was part of the Haitian physician diaspora of the 1960s. So I always tell people that if you meet somebody who's got a French name, who's got African heritage and uh, is about 40, late 40s, early 50s, you know exactly where they came from because we came all from one place. Wow. So my dad was a physician. He was a pathologist, which was one of the opportunities that was open to uh, international medical school graduates at the time. And my dad just loved his work and just had like the, the best career and was just, you know, like I looked at my dad and I said, well, that's absolutely the job that I want to do. I mean, there, there can't be a better job than being intellectually stimulated, being paid well for it, making a difference in people's lives. Now, obviously my dad was a pathologist. So, you know, the old story is pathologists know everything, but it's just too late. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I grew up in a house where, you know, we had every New England journal back to 1966 wow. in the basement. We had, you know, a netter floating around the house. We had uh, 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 beautiful, like $5,000 microscopes that my dad would show me stuff on. So, you know, it was a really amazing exposure. And, you know, I think also, what I saw with my dad was not only did he love his work, but he was so important to the people around him yes. who were not doctors, his yes. brothers and sisters and other people in the community who, you know, he like was just a consultant. Like, I'll give you anything you need. I'll, I'm always happy to answer questions. You can call me at midnight. I'm happy to answer questions. So, wow. you know, I always wanted to be like that. And I thought that was something that was really important. Um, and, you know, uh, building on your history of your father, my father also died of cancer. Uh, my dad mm. was diagnosed diagnosed with a glioblastoma, uh, multiforme, oh. so GBN, and, and every doctor, any person who knows, as soon as they hear that, will say the same thing, that that, uh, that yes. sound. So he was diagnosed in 2013, and 
And, um, you know, the interesting thing is because he was a doctor and because I was a doctor and because we sort of knew what the stakes were, we said, you know what, we're going to, my dad is going to be treated well. And he is going to have a, he's not going to die in the hospital. He is going to be taken care of by his loving family. So my dad actually, he had two short rehab stints that were iatrogenic caused by us because we were trying to back off on the steroids he was taking a little bit. But if he had, we hadn't done that, he wouldn't have never gone to a rehab hospital. He stayed at home until seven days before he died. And then he died at a, at a, at a hospice and we took care of him the whole time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's another thing that I I think I'd love to talk about um, on the podcast, you know, how doctors, approach living and dying. And I think there was a very good yes. article in the, in the New Yorker. I think it's called How Doctors Die. And I, I, th- I think hopefully as they hear us talk about these things, we'll understand that, uh, you know, there's a different way to think about life and death and doctors, because of our experience, often approach it in a different way. Yeah. Well, gosh, thank you for sharing that experience. And, and you're right. I, I had an almost reflexive um, repulsion to hearing about that particular type of brain tumor because I always tell people I don't have a, a favorite type of cancer, but I certainly have some least favorites uh, in my practice, you know, treating cancers of the gut, pancreas cancer kills, you know, a huge fraction of my patients. And then you know, just at large, that's a, a horrendous tumor that your dad had to deal with. And I'm sorry. On the other hand, I actually suspect that a lot of uh, our listeners might really not know what a pathologist does. Um, <laughs> I, I suspect that they, they may know, you know, from crime dramas and such about autopsies, but there's so much more to it than that. And I'll just tell you, uh, you know, straight up, you know, as a oncologist, as a cancer doctor, I am almost literally blind without my pathologist colleagues. So I need a piece of tissue from my patient to make a diagnosis. Often I need it at you know, separate points throughout a, a treatment course. And, and my patients actually have sometimes asked JL, can I meet my pathologist? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer, sadly, is usually no, because they're usually in a lab with a microscope looking at stuff. But, but it's fascinating. And I'm really glad you're pulling back that curtain too, because there's, there's so much that happens in medicine that's behind the scenes. You know, we're human beings, we're, we're fallible, but actually many of us, I think, have quite defensible uh, motivations for entering the field. Um, and, and also, I think it's it, neat that we talk about different specialties. We're all in this together. Um, so listen, this got, this got heavy, but I think appropriately so. Why don't we go ahead and go to a break? Uh, and then when we come back, we'll shift gears a little bit. All right, sounds good. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So, Jay, one thing I wanted to do for our audience was uh, allow them to get more out of their healthcare. And again, you and I have the opportunity here while we're talking to hopefully make, again, a very complicated industry, if I can use that word, um, just a little bit more comprehensible. So I'll start with the patient-physician relationship. You know, what should the patient be communicating to you? And, And if time weren't an issue, and of course we know it is, what would you ideally learn? about a patient. And I guess we'll start by saying the first visit, but presumably also a subsequent visit. So, I, you know, look, I think for a patient, 
it's always helpful to contextualize and create an understanding of framework around sort of what the, your doctor is dealing with. So, um, you know, I think help patients understand that time is an issue, that whether your doctor wants to or not, he or she has got limited time with you. And, you know, the truth is a lot of doctors are on hamster wheels. You know, they are facing increasing pressure to be more productive, quote unquote, and uh, they just don't have lots of time. They want to be able to spend an hour with you because there's so much to get to know in talking to a patient about their disease, about who they are. And often as you build that relationship, you meet the most interesting people in the clinic and you and you learn so much and grow so much. But often in today's industrialized medicine, you know, you got to just take care of whatever has to be taken care of. So I think help patients understand that time is finite and really focus on being clear and having an agenda when they come to the doctor. Like, why are you there? What's your goal? What do you want to achieve? How can the doctor help you to achieve that goal? And I think that going in there with that framework, I think can be very helpful because I think sometimes what happens is people get excited, let's say about their condition. They go on Google, they read, you know, a whole bunch of articles, they they download 30 pages and they give it to the doctor and say, hey, can you can you do something with this? But the truth is that's not, usually the 30 pages aren't that helpful to me. What's gonna be helpful to me is understanding who you are, understanding what you're trying to achieve and how I can help you with that. There's some happy medium, I think, between um, overwhelming uh, your talk with, like you said, the 30 page uh, Google search. I, I literally once, I'm, I'm not even kidding, had a patient bring in a dolly with boxes of documents on it. And I was like, yeah, this is gonna have to be my homework, sorry. Um, on, on, on the other hand, I think there's there's almost sometimes too much passivity. What I mean yeah. by that is, you know, I sometimes hear the, the phrase, oh, routine checkup. Um, mm-hmm. If you go in and you don't, to your point, have you know something top of mind that you wanna discuss, I'm not sure you get as much out of that visit as you really ought to. There was this uh, sort of dominant paradigm in medicine for a long time, which was paternalism. You and I would come in in a white coat, very stern, and sort of dictate what was going to happen. Um, a lot of times that was incredibly abrupt, and then we would leave, and there was really no soliciting of preference. Now, again, everything is on a spectrum. On the other end of that uh, spectrum is what I call a la carte medicine, where a, a modern, uh, perhaps uh, overly <laughs> gracious doctor says, here's a menu of things we could do, what would you like? And some patients told me, doc, listen, I'm here because I do want your advice. I want you to guide me. I don't want it to be, you know, like it's set in stone, but please give me some sense of where you think I should go. And I think that counsel, that puts us in the middle and what we call uh, now shared decision-making. Empowering patients to be active participants, I think, is a very important thing. I, I think it's, it, it creates engagement. I think it gives uh, patients a sense of agency and control. And I really do believe that there is a difference between, you know, the 30-folder dolly and the patient who says, you know, I take a green one and I take a blue one, right? There's got to be somewhere in between that. Um, and the what I use. It's the white pill, right? You know the white pill. It's or my favorite one is oh, it's in the it's in the record. <laughs> it's like well, I don't have <laughs> yes. access to that record. Um, but you know, one of the things that I always did actually, just as a, a little tip here, when we we're dealing with my father's sickness, and I also forgot to mention that my mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer three months before that. So it was I actually <sighs> took I actually <sighs> took off six months from work to basically be my parents' personal primary care physician. But one of the things <sighs> that I did uh, to empower my sister, who is not a physician, and my mother who is not a physician, was I created three by five cards for them so that if I was ever not there, the three by five card had like the key diagnosis, the key problem, the key meds, and like they could read obviously so they could share that information. But if there was ever a question, like these are the key things you need to know. And if there's a problem, call Dr. Neptune. 
Gosh. Well, well, first of all, you were just an amazing concierge physician to your folks. And I'm sure, especially looking back on it now, you realize just what a a valuable service you're providing to your parents. That's just, uh, sorry about the double jeopardy of both your your mom and your dad. That's, That's brutal. Yeah. It did strike me though, JL, that what you just said dovetails actually with one of my sort of things I was taught during my, my training. I had a, a, a teacher, again, we call them attending physicians, people who are supposed to be paying attention to us in our learning, who said, if you can't fit all the salient details of your patient onto an index card, you're not distilling down their case enough. And again, a phrase that, again, I think is known outside of medicine, but deserves to be decoded is rounds. So we're in the hospital. We'll sometimes have you know, dozens of patients to take care of at any given time. And we literally walk around and visit each patient in turn. And you have a very brief uh, opportunity to convey to your boss, who is ultimately the one responsible for the care, what is happening to that patient. And that's where I think we learn to sort of come up with these synopses. So the fact that you are now you're instilled in your, in your sister and are now instilling in our listeners this idea of sort of creating a capsule summary, I think that is so powerful. I think that makes excellent use of limited time. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, at, at Columbia, the um, where I trained, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, which is Columbia University Medical Center now, the culture was for the medical students to have a three by five card. But by the time you were an intern, you had to remember a whole service in your head, if you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, that's quite the memory trick. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to sort of expose, and you mentioned it already, is time. I don't know if there's anything that is actually more commodified in medicine these days than time. And again, it's important for listeners to realize we really, really do want more time with you. We crave more time with you. But the system is such that it is virtually impossible for us to carve out those extra minutes. And certainly those extra hours are are virtually unheard of. And it's because a doctor's schedule is typically broken down into units. uh, And then units are, are then quite literally monetized. So I am afforded one hour the first time I meet a patient. Thereafter, it is very, very rare that I get more than half an hour. And again, these are people with cancer. There's a lot to talk about at the beginning, and there is a lot to talk about as we go through treatment. And one of the things I wanted to highlight too is something called the social history. Um, The social history, as you well know, but our listeners should know, is an essential element of the first time we meet you. So when we first meet a patient, we're supposed to write something called the H and P, the history and physical. So a combination of the narrative that brought them to us and of course our examination. But the part of the history that I find very interesting is social history. And and that may sound very sort of airy and light and like we're getting to know you as a person. In fact, I think quite the opposite. And I'd be fascinated to get your opinion with your work. I think it has been reduced to a checklist of vices. (laughs) Does this patient smoke? And if so, how much? Do they drink? And if so, how much? Do they use intravenous drugs? And then maybe, maybe you get into sexual promiscuity. It is basically just kind of this list that I, I think completely misses to be honest with you, the, the, the fuller identity of the person in front of you, like I, I try to make it a point to ask, you know, what do you do? You know, what is your line of work? Are you retired? Tell me about your family. And the problem is I, I love that stuff, but also there's this clock in my head where I know the time we are taking to talk about that, that is being subtracted somewhere else. And it all matters. 
but frankly, other than that first visit, I seldom actually get the opportunity to ask again. And I just find that to be pretty tragic. Yeah, yeah. I'd say in, in the addiction space, I mean, the social history is very important. And I think to some extent, whereas, you know, you are going to have to spend a lot more time talking about imaging and pathology, in addiction, we don't have that so much. So, you know, the social history almost becomes the x-ray, if you will. It becomes the, the CT scan. But, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like, I think people don't understand how important it is to your doctor to know, you know, who do you live with? Um, you know, what is your relationship with that person? Are you in a safe environment? Do you feel safe? Are you spiritual? Do you go to church? Is God important to you? You know, are you supporting people? Um, you know, what's your money situation like? Those are all very important data points that can really drive what you recommend as a physician. And, you know, the person who lives alone, who has no supports, you're going to treat differently from the person who's got, you know, 12 grandkids, six adult children, and lots of resources at home. And a story I always like to tell is my uncle-in-law about three years ago, pre-pandemic, had bilateral, so bilateral means both sides, knee replacements. And uh, they were going to discharge him home. Uh, and it never occurred to him, to them, that he lived alone, that he uh, lived in a house that had like two sets of gigantic stairs yes. that he had to get up into yes. the house and that he was going to be going there by himself and that he had really no other supports. And, you know, his wife had died uh, 10 years before. And it's just a great example. Like if you're if you're just being mechanistic and just saying, OK, do this, do this, do this and not getting the full story of the patient and their full history and their, you know, an understanding of who they are, it can really impact how they do. And like, for instance, in, in this case, my, my uncle-in-law might've had to come back to the hospital for a simple reason that if somebody had said, Hey, do you live in a walk-up or an elevator, you know, building, he might've been able to tell them otherwise. Yeah. These social determinants of health are so easy to miss and they are so crucial. So thank you for highlighting that. I did want to bring up uh, JL, again, to maybe end this segment on a slightly rosier note, uh, what I think is a modern solution. As of last spring, so spring of 2021, it is now federal law that we have to provide uh, results, medical records to patients through um, electronic means. And I realize there's still an equity gap there. Not every patient has access to that. But my real point is many of these programs, not only can a patient see their own results, they can also send basically like a secure email to their doctor. And I cannot tell you how much this has helped my practice because what it has allowed patients to do is have questions answered in what I would call an asynchronous manner. So between visits, I can answer when I get the chance, they can get the answer when they have time to read it. And it has actually been a real game changer. And I think as long as there's respect to the exchange and the questions aren't frivolous and they never have been, I actually think uh, we, are, we are finally taking this computer system, which a lot of doctors have, have loathed in terms of the documentation requirements, and actually really use it to our advantage in how we communicate with patients. Because if you think about it, like, you know, everywhere else in your life, like if one of my friends calls me, like actually calls me on the phone, I'm actually concerned there's some sort of emergency because otherwise <laughs> it's all text or email or DMs. But an actual phone call, oh my goodness, something must be the matter. Yep. But I have to say this electronic messaging system, it's still confidential and private. But it is a real important tool for getting information, again, exchanged back and forth between visits. 
I agree. And, and look, you know, you know, I'm a technology guy. I'm an investor. I've been a founder. And I really do believe that while a lot of our technology that we have developed hasn't been useful and to some extent has made doctors less effective, I do believe, uh, especially with the pandemic, the pandemic has really allowed us to think differently about how we experience healthcare. And I think people have gotten more confident and comfortable with the video visit. And I think these other technologies that help people build good relationships with their physicians and get the, the support that they need, I I think are going to grow. Wonderful. Well, JL, uh, this has been just great. And I have to tell you, talk about getting to know a patient. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you uh, throughout the course of this podcast. I I think uh, we're going to have a great dialogue and I hope people enjoy listening to it. Um, One of the elements of our show is going to be before you go, we're going to try to end on a, maybe a lighter note, but definitely a a kind of a shorter element. And I understand that you might have a, a healthcare hack Absolutely. So it's, uh, you know, this, we got a complicated system. So sometimes you're going to have to think like a hacker uh, and figure out how to best get the care that you need. So uh, a thing that I always like to talk about is that uh, while your doctor may be well-meaning and almost always well-meaning, they don't necessarily know how much your care is going to cost. Uh, And that's partially by design. Sometimes you don't want the doctor to know, so that doesn't drive their decision. But sometimes the doctor just hasn't been trained into doing that. There's also lots of pricing differences in the, the healthcare system. So somebody might pay zero, somebody might pay a hundred, somebody might pay a thousand for the same service. So you really have to think about looking at the healthcare system and how can you get the most out of your spending. So many drugs are available in generic form. People tend to think that maybe generics are not as good as branded drugs, but that's really almost never the case. I prescribe a medication called buprenorphine that's also available as a brand, Suboxone. People often ask for the Suboxone, which is very much more expensive than the the generic buprenorphine. And I just help them to understand it's the same drug based on the same chemical formula made in the same way and available to you at a much lower cost. Uh, You know, my wife uh, had some asthma-like symptoms a couple years back, went to see a doctor, prescribed an inhaler. That inhaler cost something like $200 at the pharmacy. And again, the the physician who was prescribing it didn't really understand anything about my wife's drug benefit, didn't understand anything. And I told my wife, I was like, you know, that medication, you could probably gotten that for maybe $10. So again, I think shopping with your doctor, talking to your pharmacist, asking for cheaper options is something that can get you very far. Uh, And there are a lot of new apps now like GoodRx, which is an app that you can find online that will give you the prices for different drugs uh, at multiple different pharmacies. And if you've ever looked at the range of prices for the same medication on GoodRx, you might see a 50% difference in price between one pharmacy and another. So be an educated consumer. If you grew up in the New York area, there's a guy named Cy Sims, and he always said an educated consumer is our best customer. And uh, I think that applies in healthcare as well. So shop around, ask for cheaper options, and you can almost always find a better price. I absolutely love that. That's fantastic. Well, if you don't mind, my segment is going to be Mean Tweets. I have to tell you, I'm very active on Twitter as a doc. It's my favorite social media platform. But you do take some heat on on Twitter. Uh, and <laughs> yep. it just happened to me, and I wanted to share it with you. So, you know, we're recording this in early 2022. There's a, a phrase in Vogue right now, which I both understand but also have a problem with. And it's, I'm done with COVID. It, it, the problem with that phrase to me is, well, okay, but, you know, COVID's not really done with us. And, and so my tweet was, you know, imagine I'm at a, a, an oncology conference, which is what I do. And I raise my hand. I say, well, well, yeah, but have we tried being done with cancer? <laughs> and of course, I was being a little bit silly. Uh, and people uh, you know, pointed out the, the false analogy. And I get that. But I have to say, you know, done is a feeling. Done is not a public health 
exit strategy. And I had some people tell me, oh, you don't understand the exhaustion. Oh, I, I get the exhaustion. And I also get the fact that my patients are exhausted trying to battle both cancer uh, an immunocompromised condition uh, and this you know, raging pandemic. So one thing I have learned, but I'll say is tone is very, very difficult to convey uh, in writing in, and on Twitter. So I, I do need to be a little bit careful. And I wasn't trying to be overly glib, but I just thought that was a really funny response. And, and what were the mean things that people were saying about you? Were they saying you're dumb? Or were they saying, what, what, were, what were they saying about you? Well, I was disconnected. I didn't understand the, the emotional state of the country at the moment. And, and again, you know, <laughs> I, I have a kind of an interesting perspective on that in a clinic where everyone is terrified that they're going to die of either a untreated cancer or a acquired viral infection. So, uh, but, you know, I also understand it, it's a fractious time. People are on edge. Some people go on to social media to vent. So I, I do understand that. So I think, JL, this has been a, a wonderful first chat with you and I look forward to many more. Um, I also wanted to, um, you know, thank our listeners for tuning in. And in fact, I really hope, and we really hope that audience participation will be a big part of our show. We want to hear from you. So if you do have a, a question, we want you to reach out to us on uh, Twitter. Uh, JL, what's your handle? My handle is Jean-Luc Neptune, straight, written straight, J-E-A-N-L-U-C-N-E-P-T-U-N-E. I was also very creative with my handle. I'm Mark Lewis, M-D. Uh, that's M-A-R-K-L-E-W-I-S-M-T. Uh, really thinking outside the box. And you can always always uh, call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And one final uh, disclaimer. We obviously love talking about medicine. We're healthcare professionals, but this show does not provide formal medical advice. If you have any questions, as I think we've already stressed, make sure you ask your doctor. All right. And with that, uh, we come to the end of our show today and we wanted to wish everyone well. And please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.